Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the To Serve and Protect podcast. Um, as we discussed in our last episode, the trial into two of the officers involved in Elijah McClain's death has gotten underway. Um, we're not I mean, we're not going to go too much through like the charges and who's on the stand and whatnot because we kind of already talked about that in the last episode. Um, if you haven't listened to the last episode, I highly recommend it. We cover the uh, facts of the case leading up to it. Um, I share my own opinions on what I think about it. Uh, we play the body cam footage. Um, by the way, if I sound like uh, I'm coming in a lot clearer... That is because, first of all, I've set finally set up my whole, um, I've set up my desk, my desktop computer, all that stuff. So I'm not, you know, sitting at my laptop holding the mic in my hand. I'm actually at my computer with a boom arm and everything. And obviously you can tell this is a new mic. Like I, my voice is coming in so much clearer. Um so much more interrupted. Uh, yeah. So, welcome to the new uh, standard of recording for this podcast. On my nice little Shure MV7X. Uh, it was on sale, so I was like, oh shit. Yeah, I gotta buy it if it's on sale. $240 mic. It was like 170 on Amazon. So, if you want to get yourself one, it's yeah, it's 20% off right now on Amazon. So... Had to snag it. We're here with the new Sure microphone. I fucking love Sure, so I'm really happy. Um, I'm probably never gonna buy an SM7B because that is way too expensive, and that mic just no. I don't need all that. <laughs> I don't need a mic that good. Um, but that's kind of just recapping where we're at. Uh, the first trial is Officer Randy Rodema and Jason Rosenblatt. Um, they both face charges of criminally neglect homicide, manslaughter, and assault causing serious bodily injury. Uh, again, we kind of already talked about what happened. Uh, to recap, Elijah McClain, uh, there was a 911 call that came in about a sus suspicious person watched this 23-year-old Elijah McClain uh, walk into a gas station. He was wearing a mask in the middle of August of 2019. And as he was walking home from the store, he was just picking up some iced tea. Uh, cops met up with him, and he was put in a carotid hold twice, injected with ketamine, and then later died at the hospital. Uh, that's kind of just a basic recap. You can listen to the last podcast episode, the last episode, uh, to kind of get a full recap of where we're at from 2019 to finally charges being brought and a trial starting in 2023. Because this is four years, four years ago that this happened. And this is the first of three trials finally getting underway. So, um, so as I said, the trial's underway. We are about to enter week three of the trial. Um, well, yeah, we should be starting because I should be uploading this on Tuesday the 3rd. Um, there was no court on the 2nd for Mother Cabrini Day. It is a state holiday in Colorado. Government offices are closed. Blah, blah, blah. You don't care. Uh, but um, what was I going to say? Oh, we are in the third week of the trial. The trial started, oh, I'm bad with dates. It was a Wednesday. Well, I was a testimony, I should say, started, um, what is that, the 20th? Yeah, the 20th. Because um, we just wrapped up a full, full, full week of testimony. So we had about Monday, Tuesday um, was jury selection. Monday, Tuesday, and then part way through Wednesday was jury selection. So the trial started the 18th. 
um, for jury selection, 1920th, and then the 20th is when we got opening statements, and then the 21st is when we got, uh, sorry, testimony. So we're going to kind of just wrap where we're at so far in this trial because a lot has happened in this trial so far. Um, between the opening statements, between some of the uh, witnesses, probably one of the most important witnesses of the trial so far took the stand on Friday. We're going to wrap that all. So let's kind of just get right into it because I know you don't want to uh, be kept waiting if you're even still listening. If you are, thank you so much. So, yeah, so... After three and a half days of jury selection, three and a half, oh, it says three and a half, so it must have started on the previous Friday, but um, after three and a half days of jury selection, opening statements began on Wednesday, okay. So here, here's kind of the understanding of Officer Rodema and Rosenblatt's role within the um, within the investigation within the killing. So Rodema and Rosenblatt, along with Officer Nathan Woodyard, responded to a nine one one call by a teenager who reported a person acting suspiciously. The area where the caller reported seeing McLean is considered a high crime area, and I'm putting that in air quotes. I know you can't see me. Um, because the defense brings us up a lot that it was a high crime area, which required a three officer response, according to Aurora Police Department's policy, their defense attorney said in opening statements. Woodyard was the first officer to contact McLean, while the other two acted as cover officers for Woodyard's protection. He grabbed McLean when he didn't stop walking. The officers then took him to the ground and put him in a type of neck hold that can induce temporary unconsciousness and is intended to gain control of a person by temporarily cutting off blood flow to their brain. That's the carotid hold. McLean threw up into his mask several times while pinned to the ground. An Aurora fire rescue paramedic called to the scene injected McLean with 300 milligrams of ketamine. About 18 minutes after the officers first stopped him, McLean was unresponsive in an ambulance. He stopped breathing and went into cardiac arrest. He was taken off life support a few days later in the hospital and died August 30th. Woodyard and paramedics Jeremy Cooper and Peter Chinchuniak also faced charges for McLean's death, which we talked about uh, in our last episode. In his opening statement Monday, Prosecutor Jonathan Boonge said Rodama and Rosenblatt broke the Aurora Police Department's policies and training at every part of their encounter. They didn't have reasonable suspicion McLean had committed any crime to stop him. Um, a carotid hold is only meant to be used if someone is violently resisting and less severe tactics haven't been effective. The officers didn't check McLean's vital signs after using it and ignored his repeated cries that he could not breathe. A person saying they cannot breathe is meant to be treated as a medical emergency, Bunge said. With that badge comes accountability to the people that they have pledged to protect and serve. In this case, that promise was broken, Bunge said. Bunge is a partner at Quinn Emanuel in Chicago and is serving as a special assistant attorney general for this case. Uh, he said there is no evidence McLean resisted. Um, he played body-worn camera footage that captured McLean saying to the officers, why are you grabbing me? I'm just going home. And you guys started to arrest me, and I was stopping my music to listen. Defense attorneys for Odama and Rosenbach pointed the finger at paramedics during their opening statements, seeking to direct responsibility for McLean's death solely to them. And this is great because I'm going to get into this later, but um, the defense attorneys blame shift have been blame shifting this entire trial oh my the amount of times they've called for a mistrial and blaming the prosecution for like the most mundane shit is ridiculous like not disclosing evidence that they themselves got the day before like uh, i'm gonna get into it but uh to kind of time jump here um the defense called for a mistrial because of an alleged disclosure. Um, what do you want to say? Uh, 
a disclosure um fuck now i lost this article so i'm like trying to go back sorry i got a stupid pop up ad god i need to get an ad blocker but uh <laughs> um they were calling for a mistrial due to a uh, disclosure violation. Now, for those of you who don't know, disclosure, um, basically, each side has to turn over any evidence that they receive. So if you get a piece of evidence, you can't hide that from the um, other side. So you can't come up to court and go, well, what about this evidence, and surprise them. You're not allowed any surprises in court. Uh, so whenever you get like a new piece of evidence, because they do they do um, discovery prior to a trial where all the evidence is brought in. But if like new evidence comes in during the trial um, that you come across, that can be brought in, but you have to disclose that along with obviously all the other evidence that you've already planned on bringing in um, to the other side. And usually the courts decide how how much notice is expected. In this case, the judge ordered a 24-hour turnaround um, for disclosure, which the prosecution, mind you, did in this instance. They gave them a – oh, no, I think it was 12-hour. Yeah, they gave the defense a 12-hour heads up, and they had just received that evidence that day that the day that they turned it over and yeah and it was just ridiculous the defense was calling for a mistrial because they're they're just they're just blame shifting that's all they're doing this whole trial is blame shifting instead of admitting instead of it just admitting their clients did something wrong or instead of you know because obviously they pled not guilty so they're not saying that they did you know that they did anything wrong um, but to just be like, well, you know, if he did something wrong, this guy didn't tell me he did anything wrong, so he must, he's okay, you know. That was one of the, they were like, his his sergeant didn't tell me what, he wasn't doing a bad thing, so he must have thought it was okay. Like, oh, it's just, if these guys get off, I'm going to be so mad. Uh, but let's get back, let's get back right into the uh, opening statements. Before the paramedics arrived and made the decision to inject McLean with a dose of ketamine too high for his 140-pound weight without examining or speaking to him, the attorneys argued, the officers followed their department's policy and training to the letter. The forensic pathologist who performed McLean's autopsy, Dr. Stephen Cena, originally prepared a report finding the cause and manner of his death undetermined. He later amended his report to say he believed an overdose of ketamine caused McLean's death but he didn't believe police, police's restraint of McLean contributed. With all the circumstances put together, the officers reasonably found McLean's behavior strange, defense attorneys said. Wearing a jacket and mask before the COVID-19 pandemic was a glimmer on anyone's radar on a warm August night in a high-crime area. The officers reacted appropriately to what they believed was McLean refusing to obey officers' commands, um, said Reed Elkis of Elkis and Sisson, who represents Rodema. Rodema told Rosenblatt at the scene that McLean tried to grab Rosenblatt's gun, a sign of intent to harm or kill the officers that could have justified a more extreme use of force than taking McLean to the ground, Elkis said. He argued the officers actually showed restraint in their response. Rodema was the most senior officer of the three who stopped McLean. Rodama and Rosenblatt also told their sergeant, who arrived later at the scene, that McLean had incredible strength, though Rosenblatt said he did not feel McLean grab his gun. Elka said at one point, McLean did a push-up to throw the officers off him. Uh, McLean's death is a tragedy, Elka said, and nobody here is going to tell you different. Just because a tragedy occurred does not mean criminality occurred. Rosenblatt's attorney, Harvey Steinberg, said in his opening statement that the officers followed APD's policy following the use of a carotid hold by putting McLean in the recovery position and calling their supervisor in the fire department. He also emphasized Rosenblatt was the most junior officer on the scene, 
with the department for about two years at the time. Mind you, Rosenblatt is the one that put him in the carotid hold twice. That, that comes up. He put him in the carotid hold twice because that comes up later in the trial. Uh, Rosenblatt is accused of kneeling on McLean's legs for several minutes to hold him down. I'm going to ask you one thing. Please be fair, Steinbeck told the jury. Please be fair and don't allow emotion or sympathy to enter into it. And don't allow politics to enter into this. Please, please. The jury appears to have no black members out of the 14-member panel chosen, which includes 12 regular jurors and two alternates. The jury selection process began Friday and lasted well into Wednesday. Um, opening statements were delayed by a private tussle over the defense attorney's dismissal Wednesday morning of a prospective juror who said during questioning that he believes he has been racially profiled by police, including in Aurora. The man, who appeared to be black, said he could said he could make an impartial decision in this case nonetheless have chosen. Each side had the ability to excuse a limited number of prospective jurors without giving a reason, and the man was among the jurors excused by defense attorneys. Judge Mark Warner agreed late Wednesday morning to allow further questioning of the man in a session closed to the public. The man ultimately was not seated on the jury. At the defense attorney's request, Warner then reviewed the prosecutor's choices for jury dismissal without cause, known as peremptory challenges for bias. He found no pattern of racial bias in their choices, he said. Although attorneys do not need to state a reason for their peremptory challenges, they cannot use them to exclude potential jurors based on protected identities such as race or religion. Okay, and that's that's kind of where we were at with the opening statements. Um, I was going to make an episode after the opening statements, but I figured... We need more trial. Like, the opening statements are just the opening statements. Like, yeah, they basically say everything that they're going to talk about in the trial, but it's more fun when you actually hear the testimony and you really dive deep into um, into the case as a whole. Um, obviously, right now we're still in the prosecution's case, so we're, only, we're still only seeing one side um, except for what comes out, what may or may not come out during cross-examination. And... Um, well, I've been live tweeting this trial, so I can definitely speak to a lot of uh, what's been going on so far. By the way, if you're not following me, please go to Twitter or X um, and follow me at serve underscore podcast. And um, I'm live tweeting testimony in this trial. Uh, pretty fun with uh, some help from um, an outside source, which I am not naming at this time. However, so, if we go into this trial, ah, wait. Sorry. I am just pulling up tweets right now. Wait. Oh my god. No, this is not what I want. Uh, trial. Sorry. Ah, uh, here we go. Okay. Cuz I have to get I have to get my list of all the uh people who took the stand. Okay, so The opening statements began. So Thursday, the 21st, is when the first um, witness was called. The first witness to be called was Aurora Police Lieutenant DJ Tisdale, and he was asked questions about the use of um, body-worn cameras and how videos are uploaded, cataloged, and and reviewed at the police department. So... um. Yeah, nothing, nothing too like crazy from their first witness. Um, he was just speaking to, yeah, like I just said, how body cam, um, which we kind of know, you know how it works. They get a call, 
And then um, when they arrive at the scene, they activate their body cameras, which is absolutely ridiculous. They should be on at all times, but whatever. They get there. They activate their body cameras. Um, then, you know, the footage is stored and then it gets uploaded and processed. And um, each officer has their own body cam and that's how they're able to uh, catalog them by the officer's name and the date and times. Yeah. The next witness, though, was an AV expert, um, David Notowitz. He's the founder and president of the National Center for Audio and Video Forensics. Um, a lot of his questions were revolved around enhancing and editing sound and video recording. Um, he actually um, enhanced the body cam footage and created what's called a master sync. And this was this was a huge debate actually in the trial about this master sync because he put all the videos together and then com compiled the audios um, into one audio file um, and made it looseless audio, which for those of you who are lossless, looseless, I say lossless audio and lossless video. And for those of you who don't know what lossless audio is or video is, is when you're enhancing um, an audio or visual file um you do so in a way to where you don't lose anything lossless that's what that's what it means lossless it's without loss that's, um so yeah and he created a lossless master sync but it was like a huge issue as to whether the um jury could look at it and they they agreed that during um testimony they can look at the master sync with uh, a transcript with like subtitles but that when they go back for deliberation they have to review the original the body cam footage in their original forms which doesn't make any sense because it's like you know you say that because you don't want them to be tainted by the enhancements but then you show it to them anyway during testimony like that just, just made no sense to me and even the judge, every time they'd play it, they'd be like, well, yeah, you know, this is enhanced. Um, and there's subtitles to help you read it. But, like, when you go back, you won't have the subtitles. And it's like, why even have them to begin with? That's so stupid. I'm going to show you this evidence. Oh, but by the way, you can't actually use this evidence in your deliberations. That doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever. But I don't know. That's just me. Um absolutely like ridiculous and yeah and that was it that was it they called two david notowitz was the last person to take the stand because they literally fought for hours over this um master sink they barely got to ask questions um the biggest issue though was arguably the defense um, said they didn't receive any of the prosecution's lists and CDs of their exhibits. The prosecution said they tried streamlining those exhibits, but the defense was resistant to exchanging copies. They also said the defense has electronic copies. That was a huge fight. They wanted to throw. They wanted to call a mistrial. They've called for a mistrial so many goddamn times, but they wanted to call for a mistrial because they didn't get a list of exhibits that they were going to show for each of their witnesses. And the prosecution argued that they that they did. And even the judge was like, I, I have a list. And the prosecution's like, we gave you an electronic. They have it in electronic form. Yeah, and it was just like, okay, somebody's lying. Like, they disclosed all this to you. All of this came out in discovery. There's no way you didn't have a fucking list. Um, and then the court went in recess for the day. Then Friday, Friday morning... The prosecution played body cam footage for the defense and then called their or for the jury and then called their first witness, uh, Dr. Mark Moss. Uh, Dr. Moss is a preliminary doctor at UC Health in Aurora and also works in the ICU and cares for patients on ventilators. He treated McLean and became his primary attending physician the day after McLean was admitted in 2019. 
and he was the one. He performed two separate tests um, f- for brain activity and was the one to declare after Elijah had failed both tests to declare Elijah brain dead. Um, and so he kind of just testified that. Literally, the defense is the defense's entire cross examination of this guy was, but you're not saying that the injuries were caused by my clients, are you? Or by the defendants, are you? And that was the whole cross examination. Uh, then they showed more body cam footage for the um, jury, and then they brought another. Um, pulmonologist, sorry, Dr. David Buther, they called another um, pulmonologist to stand, and he reported to the grand jury in 2021 about McLean's condition. Um, he filed both an initial and supplemental report on McLean's death in a grand jury investigation in 2021. Buther reviewed McLean's extensive medical records, images, x-rays, and police camera footage. He also examined the mask McLean wore the night he was forcibly arrested in 2019 by three Aurora police officers and then given ketamine by two Aurora Fire Rescue paramedics. He was declared brain dead and died in the hospital. Buther said it was a fleece mask that covered McLean's face except for small openings on his eyes, mouth, and nose. Those five first responders faced charges of McLean's death. And I don't know why I'm reading that. I already went over that. But um, he basically um, said that um, between the inhalation of vomit, um, the aspiration of vomit, which aspiration, I think we, I think we covered this on my last episode. Aspiration is when you inhale a foreign substance um, into your body that's that's aspiration so I mean we aspirate every day um, but usually to get rid of the aspiration you cough and he talked about that and um, yeah he threw up into his mask and aspirated on that vomit um, as a result of the carotid hold and then the ketamine, and the officer's non-response, and it was kind of just a mix of a mixed bag of everything that was going on that caused his death. Like it wasn't one thing in particular, but it was as it was a sequence of events that all led to McLean's death. Was yeah, his argument in this case. And then the clo- and then that was the first week that ended the first week, and then the court closed on the twenty fifth for Yom Kippur. And um, Dr. David Buther um, was finishing cross-examination on Tuesday. And then the prosecution called um, witnesses, or I should say lab specialists from NMS Labs, which... NMS Labs, which, um, what does it stand for, by the way? They are a bioanalytic toxicology laboratory um, recognized as a leader in esoteric clinical and forensic services. Um, And I think they are, I'm pretty sure they're based out of Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, But they received um, Elijah McLean's blood samples and tested it for um, a test. It was toxicology tests. Um, So they called one to speak to um, his, the cannabis that was in his system, one to speak to a different one to speak to um, how blood samples are processed, brought into the lab and processed, and then another one to speak to um, the ketamine, the toxicology report of his ketamine. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. 
And then the prosecution called former Lieutenant Bob Wessner, who collected training records, investigation documents, body-worn camera footage for the officers. Um, and all they all they talked about was like hit their attendance and their training, um, kind of, yeah. And then they brought the um, Ramandir all. all Alak, I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering the absolute goofy out of her name. Uh, but she was the owner of the gas station where Elijah McLean bought the iced tea. And she spoke to how many um, security cameras there were. There were 16 security cameras. Um, and she she spoke to, you know, in, she on cross-examination, um... They had asked, you know, asked her about the crime in the area. And she literally talked about, you know, her main concern is never about, like, is shoplifting. That's her main concern at her store, not, you know, anything else. And so if somebody comes in wearing a mask, it's not really suspicious to her. Um, that's what she spoke to, which kind of throws out their whole theory, their whole high crime area fucking theory um, out the fucking window. Like, it wasn't really a, a high-crime area, you know. It was it was just as safe or just as dangerous as any other major city, you know. Um, but high-crime area, a.k.a. the ghetto, you know. Whatever. It's bullshit. Then Deborah Fuller, who was the dispatcher that took the 911 call, um, testified. They played the entire 911 call, and she just spoke to how calls come in, how they're answered, and how they're processed. So, you know, she spoke to what led to her making it a suspicious person, listing it as a suspicious person, uh, stuff like that. Nothing real too gripping. Uh, then this second dispatcher who sent officers to the scene... Um, testified and um, yeah yeah she sent a one officer car and backup to the intersection of Billings and Colfax on the night and the defense kept trying to push they are trying to bait the absolute goofy out of these witnesses into admitting that it was a high crime area and yet, like, nobody other than the defense attorneys have called this area a high-crime area. Like, they've had people come on the witness. Well, y you know, usually a three-officer response is, is common in, like, high-crime area, right? And and someone was like, I think it was the um, dispatcher, was like, well, you know, it depends on if, you know, if that night warrants a three-person. Because some nights some areas might get listed as a three-officer response. But that doesn't mean high-crime area. It just means three-officer response. And that's what they were trying to emphasize. Like, just because it's three-officer response doesn't mean it's a high-crime area. And nobody will fucking say that this was a high-crime area. And it is the funniest fucking thing. It is the funniest fucking thing to watch these officers or to watch these defense attorneys go... But it was a high crime area. I mean, it, it, do you do you expect to see that in like a high crime area? And then everyone's like, "What?" No one will definitively say that this was a high crime area. Like they are honing in on no, these officers weren't racist. It was a high crime area. Like no, your your clients are racists. Sorry, sorry. Um. And yeah, that's kind of just that was the whole that whole day of the trial was the more more so the events that led up to the the stop. Um, one thing that I've noticed is that um, so far in this trial, the prosecution has literally gone through like the um, has t almost gone through like the chronological events. Um, they're mixing in others like, you know, because like literally their first witness was about how body cam 
body cams work. So before they even talk, show the body cam footage, let's, let's just talk about how they even work. And then it was, you know, how body cam, how about like AV working and they kind of just working this one piece at a time, which I mean, you want to do that. Uh, of course. Um, and then Wednesday, this was fun because Wednesday um, was actually a delayed start for the court because uh, juror number 12 had called in with the death of the family and they may not and that they said they wouldn't show up until noon. So they weren't deciding what they were going to do about this. And ultimately, uh, the judge decided, well, let's let's recess until noon and figure out, you know, what's what's going on with the um, with this juror. So then around 1230, um, they continued the trial. Juror number 12 agreed to stay on and um, didn't appear even on Thursday, I think, the uh the judge had said like, oh yeah, he's, you know, he seems to be doing just fine. You know, he seems to be doing great with, uh, um, with what was going on. Uh, the, the juror said his uncle died and he didn't sleep that many, he wasn't sleeping that much, but that he could continue listening to testimony. Uh, yeah. So once, once they got the juror seated, prosecution called, um, Stephen Red, Redfern to the stand uh, he was a captain in the Aurora Police Department at the time of Elijah McLean's death. Um, and Redfern, Redfern said he changed in the dispatch log from suspicious person to assault on a police officer. He made the change without investigating the incident, reviewing the body-worn camera footage, or interviewing any of the officers at scene. Before this call was closed out, based upon the information that was provided to me by the sergeants, it went from a suspicious person to an assault based on the information, and so I changed it so it would accurately reflect the information I had been provided. And he kind of talked about that, how, how he leveled up the the call, right? It wasn't it was no longer a suspicious person, it was a assault on a police officer that warranted a different response to what had happened. Um and he was on the trial. He was on the stand all day. They were the. He was the only um, person that they had called on Wednesday, and even the um, even the judge, Mark Warner, said we're going like a mammoth in La Brea when he commented on how slow court was going on Wednesday. Yeah, nothing really happened. It was, uh, yeah. It. The biggest thing was actually what happened before the testimony because that was the first day that the defense attorneys complained about the late disclosure of uh, witness reports. And then obviously the half day with the juror um, with the death in his family. Um, this was another call for a mistrial. The judge denied it, but said that um, uh, said that uh, they the 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 prosecution would have twelve hours to turn over reports for major witnesses, four hours for minor, um, in advance of uh, testimony. And at the end of the day, they called for another mistrial, like. It's so absolutely fucking ridiculous. The amount of time... I've never seen this. I've never seen them call a defense. I've, obviously, every trial, a defense is going to call for a mistrial. Like, it's going to happen every fucking trial. Um, I, the, the defense is going to call for a mistrial. Like, it's it's going to happen. Pretty much every trial. But the extent at which these fucking attorneys are doing this, it's absolutely ridiculous. So anyway, we go home for Wednesday after after the motion for a mistrial was denied. We come back Thursday morning at 9 a.m. And guess what happens? Guess. Can, can you guess? I'll bet you can't. I'll bet you can't. I'll bet you can't. They called for a mistrial. 
Again. Again. And they based it off of not enough evidence to um, to convict, which normally wouldn't happen in the middle of the prosecution's fucking case. This is what I say. When I say the, the defense calls for a mistrial every fucking trial, this is what I'm talking about. They'll usually do it at the end of the prosecution's case. They'll be like, there's not enough um, evidence to convict, and we want a mistrial. And that happens pretty much every every criminal case every criminal case that happens 99.99.9 percent of the time it's denied i have never seen in my life i've never seen that happen in the middle of the prosecution's case that is insane and then the judge was like i can't i haven't seen all the evidence yet so i can't really say if there's enough evidence to convict because it hasn't been all presented to the jury yet like, no shit. So they go through that, and then the uh, prosecution calls um, a UC Health nurse to the stand, um, Andrea Libhart, who drew Elijah McLean's blood, and she talked about processing blood and all that. Um, a forensic toxicologist from NMS Labs, Michael Lamb, took the stand. And this this was kind of contentious. Um, at the beginning, it kind of led to also the call for a mistrial at the beginning of the day. Uh, they had received a new report, and this was what I was talking about at the beginning of this episode. They had received a new report at the um, beginning of the day, or the night prior, by the defense, um, re- you know, regarding this witness, regarding Michael Lamb. Um, and the defense was like, look, we had just got this in and we reviewed it with our experts and yeah, like we had just got this in. And so the, the judge was like, yeah, he allowed it. Um, he didn't see that they violated any, um, disclosure. So anyway, so that that was with Michael Lamb. So he testified that lab results found 14 nanograms nanograms per milliliter of delta THC, 31 nanograms per milliliter of delta 9 carboxy THC and 4.9 milliliters of 11 hydroxy delta 9 THC in Elijah McLean. Lamb said he couldn't make an appropriate opinion on the concentration of marijuana that would equal impairment. Lamb also calculated that McLean had received 7.7 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine, which is more than the 4 to 6 milligrams of an anesthetic dose, the dose at which a person is unconscious and may need help breathing. So again, anesthetic dose is 4, is 4 to 6 milligrams per uh, kilogram. Elijah McLean had 7.7. Just... That was that was jarring. That was a little jarring that he had 1.5 times the uh, anesthetic dose. And even in the anesthetic dose, they need help breathing. Which kind of, oh, now you kind of see why he went into cardiac arrest. The next witness to take the stand was um, Sergeant Kevin Smith, who trains officers and oh my god the phrase pursuant to the training is going to be stuck in my head all day because he can't speak to what the officers did that night unless he specifically covered it in his training like he can't speak to what they did or what they didn't do what they should have done what they shouldn't have done unless he specifically covered it in the officer's training um so he went through uh he said it's so i'm just i'm just going to run through some some of his quotes it's the first slide that introduced this concept of this pervasive saying that's in medical and law enforcement and sports fields and everything of this hey if you can talk you can breathe 
And it's said by coaches, it's said by doctors, it's said by law enforcement, it's said by lots of folks. But we're addressing it because it can actually create a situation where an officer is blind to certain signs if they truly believe this is true. The idea that, oh, well, he's saying he can't breathe. Well, obviously, if he can talk, he can breathe. That's what he's kind of getting at. And so he, he covers that in his training, that just because they can talk, that does not mean that they can breathe. If they're telling you they can't breathe, there's a possibility that they can't breathe. Um, then he starts going through more slides with them, and he goes, this is another quote from him about a different slide. He said, this slide introduces a series of slides that talks about how to be able to breathe. Um, or no, he's still talking about, sorry, I'm off track here. He's still talking about the same first slide. Um, he said, this slide introduces a series of slides that talks about how to be able to breathe. It actually requires more than just the components of what it takes to talk. Very simply, we just sort of explain this so that the officers have an understanding of not to be disarmed because someone is still talking. And the idea is that talking only requires the first two. And then he went on to talk about the carotid hold. Um, he said there are specific protocols when performing the carotid hold, including not doing it repeatedly and checking on a person. Once they come back to consciousness, we want to start, kind of start a little timer and say, hey, if they're not coherent, if they're not answering questions, if they're not appearing normal in that 30 seconds, then it's a medical emergency. We need to update rescue and provide first aid if we need to. Elijah McLean was put into a carotid hold twice and was not given medical attention by the officers that night. He was forcibly arrested in 2019. He never regained consciousness. Um, and then this was probably the funniest part of the trial. Um, so they did their afternoon break and then when they came back, they um, before they brought the jury back in, they talked about one of the jurors falling asleep during the trial and i thought that was really funny because he was like he was like nodding off like because the testimony was so boring um pursuant to the training pursuant to the training i can just picture somebody like nodding off in the chair and just just humming those words to himself pursuant to the training that would be me i'd be pursuant to the training pursuant to the training pursuant to the training pursuant to the training um but yeah, and then the um, Judge Mark Warner, he reminded the jury to pay close attention to the evidence. Um, and it was so funny because he said, um, uh, because there were so, there's so many sidebars. There's so many, like, uh, they keep, attorneys keep walking up to the bench, and so the judge has to keep getting up. And so he drew on that. He said, I don't mind that, you know, they keep coming up because it checks me. And it keeps me awake and alert and from falling asleep. And I thought that was so funny that he um, pointed to all the fucking sidebars. Like half this trial has just been at the fucking judge's bench. It's ridiculous. It's okay. It happens in every trial. I know. Trials are absolutely fucking boring sometimes. So, you know. Um... And yeah, and then Kevin Smith testified for the rest of the day. And then they went. Um, then they took recess for the day. Friday, the last, uh, the, the most recent day of the trial. I, I took a big fucking sigh. Because guess what happened Friday morning? For an hour. A fight between prosecutors and defense attorneys. And can you believe? Can you believe? Can you believe it? No, you know what? You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on this. I'm going to hold off on this. You probably know it's coming. You probably know it's coming. But. Okay. So. Before the jury had been seated, the defense was uh, taking issue with the prosecution's witness from the APD, who is an expert on use of force. Part of the issue is that the court ordered last week that testimony cannot comment on legal terms such as probable cause and reasonable suspicion. 
And the previous opinion from the witness is that the stop on Elijah McClain was not legal and he was acting in self-defense. The defense says says this backs them into a corner, but the prosecution says they won't use legal terms and will only talk to the witness about what happened after the stop. And um, the judge, so um, the defense called for a mistrial because... Oh my god. So apparently there was I'm I had must have missed this on Thursday, but the, the judge had said something about probable cause and reasonable suspicion. And the defense took issue with that and called for a mistrial. <laughs> because of course they did. This is an everyday fucking thing. Like every fucking morning, I bet the judge Get, is getting his fucking robe on in his judge chambers and is just in his fucking head. Mistrial, 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 mistrial. Because every fucking day they walk into court, every fucking day they walk into court, the defense has some bullshit to spew and wants to call for a mistrial. Like, I, I've never seen this. Every fucking day, every fucking day of this trial. Oh my God. Did they do this? I want to know if they did this during... uh jury selection i want to know if day one of jury selection they were like yeah judge um i think we need to call for a mistrial because there's no way you could get an impartial jury like bitch stop <laughs> fucking trial hasn't even started yet <laughs> are there any pre-trial motions uh we want a mistrial <laughs> for what nothing has happened exactly why hasn't this trial started sooner Motherfucker. So, yeah. So they call for a mistrial over that. And then they they um, don't want this use of force expert to be called because they don't want him speaking on probable cause. Also because, like I said, this is probably the prosecution's most important witness to date. So, anyway, they fight for an hour and finally call Dr. Mark Brown to the stand. He's a force and control tactics instructor at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center and an instructor for Polis Solutions, which specializes in de-escalization, constitutional policing, diversity, and community trust building. He was a police officer for 14 years, mainly in South Carolina. Prosecution attorney Jonathan Bunge is playing clips. Of, sorry, I'm reading it as uh, it's written. Um played clips of the fatal encounter Elijah McClain had with Aurora police officers and asking the witness to give his opinion on whether the actions complied with APD training, which was detailed yesterday. Which, again, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm just reading it as, as I'm going. Uh, but on Thursday, which we already talked about, they went through the training. Um, they went through the whole, every every piece of the training they literally spent the whole day talking about police training and this course that um that kevin smith sergeant kevin smith goes through with all the police officers that's why it was so slow because it was just like a boring day of training it was like a training day for everyone so boring <laughs> um yeah so anyway so they um Dr. Mark Brown has said repeatedly that from his perception, a lot of things went wrong the night of August 24th, 2019. This is his, his, him quoting on the stand. My opinion is that during the restraint, their actions were inconsistent with this directive. During the restraint, Mr. McLean several times complained that he was having trouble breathing. And during the restraint period, there was no indication that they mentioned his breathing or pulse. And when he complained of having trouble breathing, there was no adjustment made to him, and he was on his side at the time. Then they went to lunch, um, and uh, Dr. Brown kind of continued talking about for uh, violent restraint, because they talked about that in the opening statement of the defense, and uh, violent restraint. And he said that Elijah McClain 
it, in his opinion, did not show violent restraint. That, that's like the biggest thing is that the officers were justified because you showed violent restraint. And he said, no, he didn't show violent restraint. Um, he was defending himself. He was defending himself. He didn't show violent restraint. So, um, yeah, that was that was kind of huge. That was huge. It was a huge blow to the defense because, and that's why they were trying to A, call for mistrial, and B, try to get this witness to, to prevent this witness from testifying, um, was because it's a huge blow to their case. This guy comes in and is saying to them, no, you fucked up. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. Um, and it, it became, um, um, it, it, it became a situation where the defense was stating, um, that oh you know well the sergeants they came onto the scene and they didn't say anything and this is kind of where the blame shifting kept happening like so that that was their whole their whole defense like I love how this force of this use of force expert comes on they know he's going to testify they have a list of witnesses they know this guy's going to testify like it's this witness was disclosed to them they knew that this guy was going to testify. And it seems like they were completely unprepared for cross-examination because they kept barking at, well, you know, they had sergeants on the, on, on scene and wouldn't, shouldn't their sergeant say something wrong if there was something wrong? And he was like, well, yeah, they absolutely would. They absolutely should. And they absolutely would say something wrong if there was something wrong. And so they're like, well, then they didn't do anything wrong because the sergeants were just following their training. Like that that was the whole thing is everybody's following their training, so or that it like I was so confused because it's like so you're saying even though your clients weren't following their training, your argument is that the sergeants were following their training. Or are you saying nobody was following their training? Like, I was super confused because it's like it's it's the sergeant's responsibility to say something, and the sergeants didn't. So nobody's following their training, or the officers are following their training, except that they weren't. Oh, but it's on the supervisors for not telling them that they were following their training. So really, the supervisors weren't following their it, – it was a bunch of blame shifting that didn't really shift the blame. Like, they still fucked up. They still didn't follow their training, whether they were told – that was against their training or not, they were trained on it. If if I go out and I say two plus two equals five, is it somebody else's responsibility to correct me? No. Like, yes, if it's somebody's job, if somebody is like the math police, you know, and that's their fucking job, and they don't correct me to be like, no, two plus two is four, you dumb fuck. Yes, absolutely. It's the you know they're in violation of their job duties by not correcting me that two plus two equals four. But I also had the training to know that two plus two is four, so it's also on me for not following my training to know that two plus two equals four. Like what the fuck? <laughs> like I was so fucking confused when that was their argument. So first it was. First it was, well, it's the paramedics' fault, right? And then and then it shifted to, oh, shit, well, okay, if the carotid hole did lead to that, well, they, they were following their training. Oh, they weren't supposed to use the carotid hole twice. Well, you know, the paramedics uh, didn't, you know, raise the alarm when he was unconscious. So really it's still the paramedics' fault. Oh, uh, our officers didn't um, properly um, inform the paramedics about his condition. Oh, well, then it's on the sergeants on the scene for not um, f for not telling them that they weren't following their training. Like, we literally went over this. 
They fuck. They fucking lied. They fucking lied. To like that's Rosenblatt when when Rosenblatt's talking to the sergeant. When I played that clip, you know, why the fuck you lying? Why you always lying? That's Rosenblatt lying to his sergeant about you know thirty seconds before they like no Rodema seven seconds Rodema fucking put his hands on him. After seven seconds, you idiot. You fucking idiot. And you did not announce yourself as police officers. What's the use of force expert talked about? About how they're supposed to... Maybe it was Kevin Smith. It was either Kevin Smith or the use of force expert talked about how they were supposed to announce themselves as police officers and they did not do that. And, yeah. And so, yeah. Rosenblatt's literally lying to his sergeant. So if they bring that up, that, well, Rosenblatt lied to his sergeant, then what is the defense going to do? Well, you know, uh, he was he was under stress, so he doesn't he doesn't have an accurate uh, remembrance of the events because it was everything was happening so fast. Like, get the fuck out of here! <sighs> they always have, and then and then they're gonna be like, I guarantee you, tomorrow morning they're gonna call for a mistrial. They're going to fucking call for a mistrial tomorrow morning. It's going to happen. Like I said, the court is not was not in session today, uh, October 2nd, because of Mother Cabrini Day. But they're going to get in tomorrow, and they're going to be like, well, uh, I, mistrial. Mistrial. Why? Be- because I said so. Because the, because uh, because this is not looking good for my clients. Like, Dude, and it's so funny because you know at the end of the prosecution's case they're gonna call for mistrial. Um, this is ridiculous. I think this is either this week or next week will be the last week of um the prosecution's case. The trial is expected to last three weeks. Uh, from opening statements, and so if if we're going based on the timeline. Based on the timeline of the 20th, you know, and you say three weeks, oh, that's the 11th. We're already on the 2nd. So, you know, three weeks would be the 11th from opening statements. So I'm thinking the prosecution is going to rest this week. And I think the defense will either start their... um, their case at the end, like maybe Thursday or Friday, say the defense rests on Wednesday and our prosecution rests on Wednesday and the defense starts their case on Thursday. Um, I think that's a possibility. Um, I just don't know. I don't know if this trial is going to be over by next week, which is when the court predicted that it would be. Um, that just depends on how many more witnesses the prosecution calls um, and how many more, uh, w- and how many witnesses the defense calls, you know, because the defense is going to have an expert for every expert the prosecution has. So, you know, not to say that the defense case is going to take as long, but you know, you do have to consider that, and you have to consider, first of all, there's two, two defendants in this case. So there's two defense trials, essentially. There's two defenses. So that's, you know, are they calling the same witnesses? So, yeah, it'll it'll be really interesting to see if this trial is really wrapped up within the next week and a half or within at least the next two weeks. I just, I don't know. This trial has gone so slow at, at times. At times it feels like it's going fast and at times it feels like it's going really slow. So I really don't know. Like what's going to happen um, in this case. All I know is I hope they go away for a long fucking time because fuck these guys. I think they're guilty as sin. I have felt that way for four fucking years. And I just I just need these guys to go away. I just need these guys to fucking go away. Um, yeah, so if the defense rests... You will hear from me next week, even if the defense, or the prosecution, why do I keep saying the defense? The defense is not going to rest this week. No fucking way. And then we have, like, rebuttal. And you got to think about the rebuttal. 
too. Because it's not like the defense rests, okay, and it gets sent to the jury. Then there's a fucking rebuttal. And usually rebuttals take like a day or two at least. You know? So, like, yeah. I just, I don't know. I don't know. Three weeks, man. Three weeks. We're two weeks into a three-week trial. I like it. Just it. The defense's case hasn't even started yet, so I don't know. Um, but yeah. So I feel like the prosecution is going to rest this week. If they do, you'll hear from me. If they don't, you'll hear from me. Um, as always, thank you so much for tuning in to the uh, to serve and protect podcast. I'm so excited that I got a new setup, man. New desk, new mic. Ah, this is great. It's hot as hell in this tiny little closet, though. I will have to admit, but I got a little, I got a little uh, desk fan, one of those desk coolers. I'll just put some water in there, blow cool water on my face. You know, it's all good. Um, all right. Well, I will see you guys next week. As always, stay positive. Keep testing negative.